All right, let's see what else God wants to do today then. So hi, I'm Andy. I'm one of the elders here at this lovely family, uh, Christ First. Um, and this might overrun a bit today, to be honest with you. This is the end of our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'm not only going to preach from a very tricky chapter, uh, but also wrap the series up. So forgive me if I go over a little, but hopefully uh, you're going to enjoy it. Um, I want us just to jump straight into scripture, if that's all right. Just to give you a bit of context, if you're new to what we're speaking about. We're in a story about the Israelites that were exiled and how God used uh, them to rebuild the temple under a guy called Zerubbabel, uh, then reestablish the centrality of the word of God through Ezra, and then really building the, the physical defenses and walls and city of Jerusalem through Nehemiah. Um, and I want to just jump back to last week uh, and where some of what Tom was preaching on was. So hopefully I can control. Yes, I can. I just want to jump back. If you're in your Bibles, please uh, go to, to Nehemiah 12. I'm going to go from 43 and then I'm going to carry on into 13, which is my chapter. And you might see why quite a few people believe this chapter marker, because we added chapter markers into the Bible. We did. They weren't there originally. It's probably been put in slightly the wrong place, a little too early. Um, but let me read to you. Um, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The men, the women, and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the commands of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Then we go on into, and you'll see why I think this carries on, into chapter 13. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned curse into blessing. And soon, as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Okay, so... Let's just think about it. chapter 12 as it ended was like in this big celebration, this time of incredible worship. Hopefully we tasted little bits of that this morning, this moment of like just expressive like worship. We are here to worship God. Let's just be super clear. There was music. There was singing. Levites were musicians as well as servants. So the Levites and the singers means technically the band, big band, okay? The musicians and the singers. There was music there was singing. It was amazing. That's that, and we would love it if, if just Nehemiah just stopped there. Just stop there, because it's kind of the end of the story. Everything's been rebuilt. Things are in place. Defenses are in place. Structures are in place. Temples are in place. The word of God is central. We're worshipping. End of story. No. Can I ask before I do this? As everyone who wants to watch it watched Lost to the end? 
You nearly got to the end, so I'm going to ruin your day then. Okay. On the 24th of May, 2010, at 5 a.m. in the morning, Jane and I wake up, bleary-eyed, trying to drink coffee and tea to kind of watch the last ever broadcast episode of Lost. We got up in the morning to watch it because it's been broadcast globally at the same time. It had taken six years to get to the end of Lost. It was a phenomenon, this whole thing. It was full of weird storylines and time shifts and polar bears and dinosaurs and smoke columns and weird stuff and numbers that had to be punched in in a certain number in a weird island. And you're watching and think, what's this all about? It's so crazy. And we think, this is the day they're going to tell us. So on the 24th of May, 2010 at 6.30 a.m., is the greatest anticlimax in TV history ever. The end is so bad. Trust me, it's so bad. If you think it was good, you need help. There were so many unanswered. You're just sitting at the end of it going, and Jane and I, literally, having stayed up because they extended it, we literally said, what the heck? Like, we got up for that, and that we thought there must be a follow-on, and there never was. So sorry, Benny. Don't bother. <laughs> It has a terrible end to it. And the most annoying thing was it was the end that we guessed at the end of series two. At the end of series two, we went, I think they're in purgatory. And that's where they were. It's like, oh! It was such an anticlimax. Recently, I felt the same about another Netflix series, but I can't reveal it because it's currently running and you probably have watched it. Not Stranger Things 4. Amazing ending, by the way. Right. So... Um, what you're about to read may seem like a huge anticlimax as well. It's kind of, this is our expect. that's what I'm looking for, the kind of rounding off of the story of Nehemiah, Ezra, Zerubbabel, the Israelites building this amazing, I'm waiting for the end of that story to come, and it looks like it just came, and then, then the next thing happens. And I want to say this is what is refreshing and beautiful about Scripture. You know what, you, we can all read the books that have all the great endings, but there's real rawness and truth in Scripture when it says, and then things go wrong, and then things fail. You've got to figure out why is it telling us that, but it does. You'll realize lots of people think, why don't they just stop at the end of 12 and call it a day there? Leaders like David and Solomon and Samson and Samuel, and you name them, and, and Peter himself in the New Testament and Paul, they fail at times. They have moments of real failure and they're, they're written down to see and you're thinking, well, why? Why put them in there? Surely the best motivational book of the Bible will be if everything goes perfectly for everyone. Why is all this truth in there? Truth is in there because it's, it's us too. It reflects us too, the nature of humanity. Even the Corinthian church is in there. Stories riddled with failure. Why? I believe it reveals failures, well, for many reasons, but two for me, it reveals the breadth and the depth and the love of God and his grace towards us. Amen? Amen. Amen. His grace towards us is that I see what you're doing, but I still love you despite because I know how you struggle. I know the fail, but I also see what sin has done to you too. And I love you and I'm faithful to my promises. Amen? I'm faithful to my promises. So I'm going to see them through to the end. It reveals his faithfulness in spite of us. And it also reminds us we cannot save ourselves. The systems we try and implement, the way in which we might try and do certain things to get to salvation, it doesn't work because we need another solution. We need Jesus Christ. 
the Savior, the one that never fails, the one that never fell over, the one that never did anything wrong, was perfect in every way and then dies on the cross for our sin. That's what we need. The humans, the best we try, we will always fail if it's just systems. We need Jesus. In Jesus, God's loving arms are fully extended. Amen? In Jesus, God's loving arms are fully extended. So we're going to read chapter 16, 13, sorry. We're going to do it properly. We're going to read it pretty much in full because we let the word of God minister to us. And I want to bring out four key like warnings and issues from within it. And I want us to learn from them. You know, it's difficult sometimes because you're looking in the Old Testament and you feel like, well, you're just going to kind of jump to a TED Talk lesson off the back of it. Well, not a TED Talk, but yes, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, what's it teaching me? Because I live today but I'm reading a scripture from thousands of years ago. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us, all scripture is breathed out with God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. You know, honest question, guys. Are you ready to come to church sometimes and be corrected? Because some of us need correction. Me too, I need correction. Come here arrogantly thinking I've got it all now and if only this happened, if only that happened. No, sometimes it's you. God wants to speak to and bring correction. The word of God is for correction, reproof, and for training. We're not here to listen to stories and walk out the door and think that was interesting. We're here for training. We're here when we read the word, even on our own, for correction and reproof as well. So we'll let the word of God train us today, I hope, by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me go to the first issue and the first warning. So this is about be careful who you let into God's space. So I'm going to read from 4 to 9. Now before this, Eliashab the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, this is Nehemiah speaking himself, for in 30, the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some, of, some time I asked to leave the king and come to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering of frankincense. So if you recall, I read like read from they read the book of Moses, saw that this wasn't supposed to happen. Tobias was an Ammonite, I believe, and he wasn't supposed to be there. And not only that, you know, that's what they read at the end of that season of celebration. Then years pass, Nehemiah comes back. Now it makes sense why they had that at the end of that chapter, because as he comes back, he sees Tobiah inside the house of God. Now, if you don't know who Tobiah was, Tobiah is the guy who said, <laughs> your wall, so weak, foxes will knock it down. He mocked, he laughed, he was someone who was against what they were doing. He tried to destroy their confidence. That guy is now housed up in what is technically like a small warehouse inside the temple. He's inside the temple. And that, what they've done is they've thrown out all the items of worship. So they've thrown worship out to let Tobiah in. 
They've thrown worship out to let a person opposed to God in to the house of God. Tobias had no shame. He'd weaseled his way in, sat at the centre of the very thing that he once opposed. For me, it's an action of letting that which opposes the way of God come and take residence in the house of God that troubles me. It's a warning to us as leaders. We are here to defend you from nonsense, to let things in that should not be in the house of God. That can creep into church, creep into the culture, keep creeping into our way of teaching. Today we might not have people who literally sit in our church opposing us, although sometimes we do and sometimes we have. We also have an ungodly culture that wants to sit inside our church that is not of God. The prosperity gospel has no place in this church. Uh, uh, something that preaches that centers on worth, as a, you know, value and income and possessions as a sign of God's blessing on you has no place in this church. It should have no place in yours. Don't watch that nonsense. Because you have to tell every poor and suffering person, it's your fault. Every Ukrainian, it's your fault. Every Afghan, it's your fault. Not man, not what we did to one another. Don't let this nonsense into your life. Kick the prosperity gospel out. Mr. Austin, some of your books will not be sold. It needs to go. But how about us, personally? Me, personally. What about what I let into the space where God should occupy? What about things about lust for things? Money, flesh. What about envy, enmity, strife, greed, or just lethargic behavior? Ephesians 5. One to five says this, but amongst you, among you, there must be not even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ and of God. We're not to let these worldly traits just infiltrate us. Weasel their way in. Coarse joking weasels its way in. A joke, a little bit on the edge. <laughs> then the next one, a little bit closer to the edge. Next time you're starting to use language you shouldn't. It's a thin, small example, but it's a weaseling. It's a kind of working its way in to places it shouldn't be. Eject it from the space that should be for worship and praise. I asked myself recently, and I have before in my life, when I consider what occupies my mind, my evenings and my weekends. What's, what's clogging up the space? And sometimes it feels very clogged. And I believe that space that God says, that's where I should be. But in there is everything else. That's the space meant for worship. And that brings us on to warning two. Honour those called to lead us in worship. I'm reading from 10 to 14 now. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had been not, have not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe and the grain, the wine and the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, and Zodak the scribe, and Pedah of the Levites, Pediah, sorry, of the Levites, and as, I, and as their assistant Hanan, son of Zechah, son of Mataniah, for they, ha they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute their, to their brothers. 
Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So what's happening here? Many things are happening here. I could preach on every one of these for an hour, but I'm not going to. The, whole, the people that were said, worship is your focus. You are here to be the worship guys who will lead us in singing and music had been literally, everything that was done to set that up had been removed. And so they, they, when it says they go back to their fields, they literally go back to work, to live. They no longer be provided for. So now their focus and their concentration on worship is compromised massively as they have to go and simply survive and to live. So essentially, worship, sung worship in this particular bit, had been removed from the centrality of the church. The ability to sing and to praise God had been taken out of the center because they removed it even physically. They removed everything that was there to help provide for them. So it moved out of the mindset of the church. And for me, this shows us the centrality of praise and worship, how much the Israelites were called to ensure that takes place, that people dedicate themselves. And I thought and I prayed about this a fair bit about bringing this, because obviously I'm in the worship team and I have some thinking here. And, and excuse my vernacular here, but I think this is you coming to church and me coming to church and coming to worship and going, nah. Someone once said to me, I, we asked, we challenged them, we said, why are you always, this years and years ago, they're not in the church anymore, why are you always so late for church? They said, it doesn't matter, I just missed the singing bit. The singing bit. The singing bit. Yeah, it's a great time of worship this morning. It's good to have Aaron back on guitar. There's a few bars lost here and there, but pretty much most of it was, most of it was there. But the centrality of worship, the importance, the central focus of worship as part of the way in which people gather and celebrate. This church has a disproportionately large worship team. We're very blessed because we have a heart for worship. I want to speak to two groups now, this worship team and this worship team, because you're all part of the worship team. This worship team, we're going to rededicate ourselves to what we are as a team. So come out now of summer, we've got summer to get through, we're going to reinstate things that bring us together because we don't get to worship together very often as a team, we just do it here on Sundays. We're going to start worshipping together as a team team. We're going to start getting together as a team. We're going to reinstate worship nights at the hub. We're going to put things in place that actually puts worship as not just a, a function of Sunday mornings for a fixed amount of time, but something we really invest in again, invest in the teams, but also allow you to come along and invest in it as well. But for the worship team out there, and I know I'm going to put some noses out of joint, but I'm not going to apologize because I'll get told off for apologizing. I'm not going to. Where are you in worship? Honestly, ask yourself. Don't, don't look at me and go, Andy, none of your business. Ask yourself, where are you in worship in this church? What do you come with? What do you come expecting? It says in 2 Corinthians 14, 26, when you come together, each should sit there and sulk and not really do very much. No, it says each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Let all th be things be done for the building up. You hear, so bring a psalm, bring a hymn, bring a spiritual song. Hallelujah, Sue Abraham, who after a very heavy day yesterday will be very tired, but brought a song today. Wasn't it great? Didn't know it that well, probably half of you. Doesn't matter. She brought it. Bring. I'm telling you, bring your worship. Bring your worship. Don't come here waiting for it to be given to you. Bring it. And if you don't like the song, sing a different one. 
And if you don't know what we're singing, suggest a different one. But don't sit there passively going, well, it's just not me. I can't picture for the life of me in this situation in the temple. They walk in when they're doing the, the chapter 12 version of this story. Walking in, sitting down, and everyone, the worship begins, they go, I don't like this one. No, me neither. Let's just sit here quietly. I don't think that happened. I don't think they went through lyrical analysis. I don't think they went in assessing it. They just said, this is worship. And unless it's heresy, which we should always challenge, I'm going to sing. Even if it's the most basic song, I'm going to sing it. Good, good father. It's so basic. But he's a good, good father, isn't he? So sing it. And sometimes we sing deep, deep pieces of scripture with wonderful depth in their lyrics. Praise God too. But it's good to just say you're a good, good father sometimes. It's not heresy. Sing it. What are you bringing when it, we talk about worship? Because Nehemiah pretty much freaked out when sung worship had been pushed to the periphery. So I'm challenging both teams. Right, okay. On to the next warning. Uh, and I'm going to be reading from, um, what am I on now? 15 to 22. So this is about, never forget, it's God who provides. Right. In those days, I saw Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them onto donkeys. And, I also, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they, when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us in the, on this city? And on this city, sorry. Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not op be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Jumping to 22. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Now, <clears throat> you, again, so many little messages in here. Big one, sorry. Some people think this is an argument against Sunday trading. I don't think it is. By the way, that's a whole other conversation. I think it's a reminder what the Sabbath is for. So yes, it's for rest. But it's not just about resting and stopping to work. Underpinning Nehemiah's anger is they turn Jerusalem into a huge market and they're massively distracted. The traders and the shoppers, it's just, just the Sabbath day is now a day of, oh, there's lots going on. It sounds like it was bustling at that time. The Sabbath and the idea of resting on the Sabbath is not just about resting, like taking a day off. It's trusting in God as provider. It's stopping from toiling and remembering he will provide all we need because he promised it. I will meet your every need. Sabbath rest is about reflecting on, I don't need to toil. God has me. He provides all. He's Jehovah Jireh. In Exodus, when the Israelites were in the desert, manna would come down from heaven. And it would rot every day. Except when they gathered on the sixth day. They could gather two days and it would not rot. 
And in that, they were reflecting again. Stop gathering on that day and reflect on God's provision. So you may not be, you know, I've had, you know, been in preachers where we talk about Sabbath rest, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm never going to get the time. I can't get a whole day off. The point is, are you taking those Sabbath moments when you can stop toiling and reflect who your provider is? Because my hand is up, guilty as charged, Father. Not enough time in Sabbath rest, thinking you are good. I don't need to strive. You will provide. You will look after me because you're a good, good father. The final warning. <clears throat> Fight to keep the word of God alive. And I felt this is appropriate considering what was said this morning as well. We are supposed to fight. Fight to keep the word of God alive. Let me read uh, 23 to 29. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ash Ashod, Ashdod, sorry, Ammon and Moab, and half of the children spoke a language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Go on to 28. He references Solomon and his wives. And then 28, he says, And one of the sons of Jehodiah, that's pronounced wrong, Jehoiada, sorry, and son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Shambalat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember me, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Okay, let's be clear on something, because you're all going to focus on one thing. Pulling people's hair out. That's all you're thinking now. Andy explained the pulling of hair out. Well, look it up if you want. I'll say a little bit about it, but not too much. The other thing is this scripture, people think it's like a, a scripture about interracial marriage, like that must be wrong. It's not what it's about at all. It's the loss of language. He's talking about the loss of language. He's talking about the inability for the word of God to be faithful and truthfully passed down through the generations because of the loss of language. That's his concern. He doesn't actually tell them to divorce. Ezra did. He just says, you need to stop because we're diluting the true origins of the word of God that would have been read out in Hebrew. And this is his fear. The next generation will get this diluted and distorted version of the scriptures that's been so sort of messed up that it's not true to the word anymore. And his fear is at best the next generation, which is why he says stop now, the next generation will get to hear that distorted version of the scriptures. And he's so upset. Ezra pulled out his own hair. Nehemiah attacked some of the men. Now, there's some, you can read it like I say, there's some say that was a, he was allowed to do that. Some say he plucked hair out. He didn't like rip the whole beer out. Some say various other things. Some say it's just metaphorical. I don't really care. The point is he's fighting against what he sees as evil. He's saying this is totally and utterly unacceptable. This is not what was supposed to happen. It was written out on that day with Moses about what you do. Now we're doing it and we're going to lose our language. And he's so furious about it. He fights. And whether he does this and pulls out a bit, I'm just looking at oh my God, the beard, thinking if I just grabbed a few hairs and yanked it, there's two beards there, either of you, just, I'm not pulling you, you go, ah, you're associating pain with, stop doing that. It's going to be a disaster. His passion for this is so ferocious that he attacks and says, stop doing it. Because it's, he's fighting evil. He's fighting 
fighting for the word of God. Today we're tasked as leaders of the church and those that we ask to preach in this church. Keep the word of God central. Keep the word of God central. Keep our language central. I know the Bible is a translation of a translation. We have to be careful here, but, but we're not going to get lost in that. We need to speak from the word of God. I mean, coming into, I've been to a church where I'm thinking, if you took that six references to Jesus out of that preach, that's a team building speech. The six references to Jesus. And the scripture you put up at the beginning, you never spoke to again. That's not the centrality of the word of God. Read the word of God in full like we are doing today because it's for teaching and reproof, correction and training in righteousness. I challenge us as small group leaders, impact workers, youth leaders, parents, physical and spiritual parents, teach the word of God to the next generation. Not the soft, palatable, watered-down version that everyone can handle. The truth. And there's some gritty truth in here. There's some difficult truth to take in. There's stuff we don't want to hear, and the current generation really do not want to hear. So we dilute it. That's the distortion I'm fearful of today. That we pass down a wrong language. That we intermingle culture with scripture and come up with something that sounds like scripture, but it isn't. That's the stuff gets on coffee mugs. Stuff that people sometimes preach to me, they say, well, it says this is the word of God. And I'm thinking, it really doesn't. I think you probably read that online, or it's a lyric to a song. We can dilute it to the point where it loses its power, its potency, and we have to teach the word of God to the next generation. And let me be honest, I, we, have to teach ourselves. And again, I'm just going to put a nose out of joint or two here, but be, just if you're going to read, and I, you should be reading, Bible over commentaries on the Bible, but commentaries on the Bible are great. Bibles over commentaries over books about the Word of God is a bit daft. If you're reading books about the Word of God and not the Word of God, start with the Word of God, then read things around that. And just be careful what's clogging up your bookshelves because it's an industry. It's an industry of just stuff. And really, if the Word of God is not central in our lives, then we read the stuff and we soak it up and we take it on. We don't realize some of that is nonsense. It doesn't stack up, but it feels good to read. There's so many books of so many ways to fix everything in life. We just need to put the word central. The word of God, not the word of man about the word of God. So it's the end of the series. It's the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. And let's just ask the question that everyone asks. Did it fail them? Were they bad leaders? Is this a failure story? Is this the, is this the big anti-climax? Is this, why did God set everything up only to see it fall apart? What's going on? Why is that? worth putting in the Bible. Isn't it just a massive anticlimax? No, it's not. They're real people. This isn't a fantasy story about some made-up group of people living in Asgard, which doesn't really exist. These are real people. It's a real story of a real situation. And we're just like them. We're just like them. We can think, oh, oh those Israelites, look what they were doing. 
But that's not just shown you. We're just like them. And there's lessons in here teaching. We've had revivals in this country. We've had them before. When the church was central to society, it was part of the way the nation ran. Every town had a church. The Bible was read at home with prayers and hymns sung in schools. Nativity plays actually about the nativity, not about how rainbow unicorns saved the world. It's about the actual birth of Jesus Christ. On our watch and watches before us, the church has grown and then dissipated. And yet, God is faithful to his promises and he continues to say, restore. Restore Restore. Despite our failings, he lets us go again. Nehemiah, as you see in the story, you keep hearing him saying, I put it back. I put it back. I put it back. Remember me, O oh God. I put it back. I saw what was going wrong and put it, I put it back. I restored what had been lost. That's the calling on our lives. Put it back. Put it back. God is faithful if we put it back. He ends in uh, 3031 with the same thing. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering and appointed at appointed times and for the first fruits. He put it back. Remember me, O God, for good. Nehemiah is asking God to approve his work, to say, I put back in what I know was lost. And he's looking for God to say, well done. He said it four or five times. This isn't an ego trip on Nehemiah. He's looking for God to say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Well done. Derek Kinder in his book says, to hear God's well done is the most innocent and most cleansing of ambition from humility, not self-importance. I don't want to hear your well done. I want to hear God say to me, well done. I don't want anyone to say, could you just give me a bit of praise here for what I've done? I just want to hear God say, well done. What I don't want to hear is you say, well done, and God say, not in my name. That's the, that's, someone mentioned this this morning. Did you mention it this morning to me about the idea of God sort of not saying, God saying, you know, go away from me. I don't know who you are. It's like, to me, that's the, I just want to hear God go, well done. You've, you put things back. You've defended what you could defend. We should be stunned by God's grace and his determination to be faithful to us and to his promises. When we fall, his desire is that we can restore. Repent, repent, repent. Not only of what we have done sometimes, but what we've allowed to happen. Repent, reorientate, and restore because his grace is sufficient. Ezra and Nehemiah are men determined to be faithful to God. They put things back. Ezra was a man of the word and of teaching. Nehemiah a man, a word, a man of prayer and a man of action. Um, J.A. Mocha in his commentary says of Ezra and Nehemiah, two of the most attractive characters the Old Testament had to offer. There are lessons from Ezra and Nehemiah that we need to rebuild, we need to fight, we need to fight for this and the next generation. 
It's our responsibility to fight, to put things back so they're not diluted generation by generation until the church is just some kind of a thing from the past that some old people go to. Despite what it may look right now in this nation, it looks like, come let's be honest, you look out that side of the church, it looks like we're failing, we're losing. Let's do our part, we put back. God will restore his church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That includes the United Kingdom. That includes England. That includes Watford. He's going to build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So despite what it may look like failure right now, what I want to say, and I titled this, Revival Starts Tomorrow. When you wake up tomorrow, revival is running. We're not waiting for another move of the Holy Spirit to bring revival. Revival is, needs to happen within us. We are the revival. And we'll be the revival for our, the generations amongst us. We'll be the revival for this town because we just want to see the name of God lifted high. The church establishes a place of love, consideration, but worship and prayer and praise and the centrality of the word of God. When you wake up in the morning, well, you can just do it straight after church or even in the prayer time. Make a fresh commitment to fight for your faith and the faith of the generations to come because revival starts tomorrow. Let me pray and then I'm going to offer some more prayer because I think there's, at least in those four things, some of us will feel like, you know what? I really need help there. And we have a wonderful prayer team and people in this room who will pray with you too. Let me pray for us. Father God, may we kneel ourselves, may we prostrate ourselves underneath Scripture. It has authority over us. If we not rise above it, we think we're here to glean what, from, what we can from it, to inspect it. We are here to, to sit under its authority. I pray, Father God, what I've brought today is in line with what you wanted to say, Father. I pray I've been faithful to the word. Whatever wasn't, did it just dissipate? But what is of you remain? Because we want to sit under the authority of Scripture. Let it reproof. Let it challenge us. Let it teach us. Let it correct us, Father God. And I pray for us as a body, we are challenged deeply by your word in a way that causes us to take a different action from this point forward or deepen into the actions we're already taking to restore what has been lost, to put back what culture has taken, that the enemy has stood by and laughed as he watched our, our culture just become secular. I don't even know what it even is anymore, but spiritual. This is a dilution. There's only one spirit we need, it's the Holy Spirit. Help us, Father God, to be that army that's been spoken of. That we pray we are ready and we are worthy of being called up the, the lines, pushed up the ranks, because we're going to fight. We're going to fight to restore true worship, the centrality of the word. We're going to fight to see restored the things that bring true praise, glory, and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me ask if you... Uh, want to acknowledge that this is something you need prayer into. I just want to remind us of those four warnings. And then the prayer team will be available, or if you want to be prayed with someone that you're with already, go. But, but the prayer team are great. It's great to step up and say, please pray for me around these things. Let's acknowledge some of these warnings that were in Ezra 13. Have you let the things of the world occupy the space you know should be for worship? 
whether it's time, your mind, your thoughts. We are such a busy people. So busy. It's, I mean, people look at me and call me half machine, which is a nice thing to hear, but it's because I'm just going like a steam farmer. But I'm doing it to try and keep up with everything that the world seems to want from me. I have to sometimes go back into, I'll talk about later, the Sabbath rest. But also, it means things are in the space where I should be able to worship God. Do you struggle to sing or to connect in worship? The worship we do together corporately and what you might do privately and what you might do with others. The thing that Nehemiah put back was the centrality of worship. He put resource towards it. Do you struggle to come in and actually worship? And in particular, I want to say, do you struggle to come in and worship on a Sunday? I'm, asking, I'm not saying worship is limited to Sunday. Don't put words in my mouth. I'm saying, when you come in on a Sunday here, is it, or is it like, I just can't wait to get there, to stand with brothers and sisters and bring my worship. I want to just challenge you. Do you bring your worship, or do you come here and analyze what these guys are doing? Bring your worship. Do you struggle to rest in the assurances that God will provide? The concept of Sabbath rest is either time off or just alien to you. Do you struggle with that? Get some prayer. And finally, is the word of God alive in you? Do you feel the prompt to read it, to read the actual word of God? Or do you struggle with it? Because the enemy hates you reading your Bible. That's why we have Babel, you know, Tower of Babel, language confusion. Just to just get, so I'm reading my Bible thinking, I'm just not really taking all this in. It's just words on a page. Is the word of God alive in you? Do you need help with that? Otherwise it becomes diluted and distant. I can't tell the difference between the lyrics to a song, a scripture, or maybe it's something from somewhere else. I've lost the connection with the word of God and its authority. Get some prayer today. So things that occupy the space of worship, struggling to sing when you come together in worship, struggling to rest, or struggling to have the word of God alive for you. Or are those things going great for you and you want prayer? Keep it going. Use me, Lord. More of that, please. The fact I feel really central right now on these things, I just want to be able to continue that. Defend it in me, Lord. And let me bring it more and more. Not just here on a Sunday, in every situation. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right, guys, we'll bless you. That is the end of Ezra and Nehemiah.